0: This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. You could be forgiven for thinking that there was no news out there whatsoever, save that news related to the COVID-19 pandemic, and perhaps maybe also a little election thing that's coming up in November. But the world has kept spinning on, and we know that because, well, if it didn't keep spinning on, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. That's science. So once a month on this program, in the week closest to the end of the month, we gather together with experts from a variety of fields and talk about science and research and discovery going on around the world in other people's fields. Joining us today are three guests from three very different fields of research, Back on the program for the, I don't even know how many times because I've lost track, is Joseph Wilson, an evolutionary ecologist from Utah State University, where he runs the Insect Evolution Lab and runs around the country looking for new species of bees. He is the author of The Bees in Your Backyard, A Guide to North American Bees, and we always enjoy having him on the show. Welcome back, Joseph.
1: Happy to be here, Matt.
0: And also with us once again is Angie Fagerlin, a professor in the Department of Population Health Sciences at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Her training is in experimental psychology and her research focuses on factors that affect people's perception of risk, as well as testing methods that might improve communication between medical providers and patients. And she is one of our favorite people in the whole wide world. Angie, welcome back.
2: Thank you. It's great to be back.
0: And with us for the second time on the program and the first time on the Roundup is Nikki Pareja. If you've been listening to our show recently, you caught her a few episodes back as we geeked out together about anthropology, art history, monkeys, and the color blue. And I am so happy that after all of that, she agreed to come back and talk about an even more diverse array of subjects. Nikki, thanks for being here.
3: Thanks. I'm really looking forward to see how this goes today. (laughs)
0: We almost always start the roundup somewhere in the cosmos, but our associate producer, Mia Dora, put her foot down this month and told me to give space some, well, to give it some space. Sorry about that. So let's start today in the other last frontier, the ocean. And let's talk about an animal I had never even heard of before this month, the sea butterfly This research shows that these snail species, which fly through the water with thin little wings, do so at different angles and speeds depending on the size and shapes of their shells. And because I'm a sucker for applied biology, I instantly got excited about the notion that this discovery could help inspire designs for new underwater robots. What struck you about this study that excited you?
1: So I I had never heard of these either. And as an entomologist, sea butterflies caught my interest, but it turns out they're not butterflies or anything related. They're snails, but they're super cool snails. So they they spend the daytime down at the bottom of the ocean on the ground. During the night, they swim up to the top and then... When they're done swimming up to the top, they float back down, but they're really cool. They're almost like ghostly little creatures flying through the water. I watched the little video about this. One of the things I thought was really interesting is that scientists haven't known what these do in the past when they're swimming because they only survive in a lab for a couple days, which is really kind of fascinating and odd, but just the structure of their shells is so unique and, and it's really kind of pretty. They look like Christmas ornaments.
3: Yeah, I'm really excited about the different kinds of ways that we can look into animals moving. And so the sort of marine dynamic of the shapes of their shells seem really exciting because one of the things that I'm working with right now with one of my colleagues is we're looking at the different ways that people viewed animals as having agency to change where they are. Throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the year. And so these little guys on such a little micro scale offer yet another thing that we might be able to look for um, when we're thinking about animal movement. And as a psychologist who
2: does nothing with animals, I thought it was really interesting about how fast they actually kind of moved um, and how they differed by the shape of the size of the snails and how fast that they moved. Um, You think of snails, at least the ones that we see in our gardens, as moving really slow, but these were not altogether super slow. So I thought that was an interesting component as well.
0: Y'all, these were species from the waters around Bermuda. And as Joseph said, you know, they don't survive in captivity for very long. But one of the things I really loved about this research is that it didn't actually take some like really huge underwater exploration to make it possible. The researchers did grab some of these and then quickly honed a video camera on some of them in an aquarium and then described what they were seeing with just a little bit of math. And as soon as I saw that, I started thinking like, man, I got an aquarium. I got some little creatures in it. I just wonder what's right in front of us that we're not even thinking about.
1: You know, another thing that kind of struck me with this, I study arthropods in the deserts and the the barriers to those different kinds of arthropods, you know, things that can fly can obviously cross barriers different than things that can't fly. And with snails, we think of them as pretty isolated. They live where they live and they're not going to really migrate. But with this, it's pretty interesting to see that pretty minor shapes of the shells can make it so they land pretty far away from where they took off, so to speak. Basically, they swim straight up, but when they fold up their wings and start to fall, they can go at pretty steep angles and land pretty far away. So their movement can actually be really rapid in terms from day to day. They can move to different spots. It's pretty fascinating.
0: There was a really thought-provoking piece in the Atlantic this month about Metrics that can help us understand fire risk. And one metric in particular that was pretty much flashing red before the widespread and deadly fires in Oregon and California early this month is the vapor pressure deficit index, which is sort of like a measure of how thirsty the air is. And in August, right before the most recent spate of devastating fires, that index had reached an all time high. What did you folks take away from this?
2: That was a concept that I had not been familiar with. I was curious if they've looked at this over the period of time, because could it be almost a predictor of fire seasons and allow them to bring more people, the firefighters, to kind of be all ready to go if it, in some sense, is a predictor of fire? And it, it just is really, to me, it was really terrifying, not only because of everything that we've seen this year. and. And for those of us who have lived under the smog, even thousands of miles away, um, knowing that that's unlikely to change, that that deficit can just grow over time was really concerning to me.
3: My partner's, one of his best friends, is a firefighter out in California right now. And it was... I don't know, surprising to know that he's one of those people who goes out there who, who has these long calls. And his biggest thing is that right now, in consideration of that sort of ratio of how thirsty the air is, that he's a huge proponent, The fireman is, of controlled burns. And it's a little bit surprising that it, a lot of it does come down to bureaucracy out there. You'd think that maybe this kind of scientific discovery would be something that would be catch like wildfire (laughs) and spread throughout our community so that we can talk about it more. So I'm relieved that we're doing that here, at least.
1: You know, this story also highlights to me the complexities that are associated with things like climate change. In the article, it kind of goes through a little bit of the math that it's associated with vapor pressure deficits. And so if the temperature increases, it's not just like a a one-to-one increase with the vapor pressure deficit. And so there's a lot of complexities that go on here, which makes our decisions even more complex. How do we handle this? Because we can't just look at it as, oh, it's a warm summer, so it's going to be a warm fire season, or it's a cooler summer, so it's going to be a cooler fire season. There's a lot of complexities.
0: Baseball managers figured out like a few decades ago that the old statistics that we kept on players, like batting average and runs batted in and all that stuff, those weren't always the best way to understand the value of a player. This story sort of speaks to the need to look for and pay attention to new metrics, especially as the world around us is changing. And I'm wondering if there's metrics in your fields that didn't exist a few years ago that today you think, wow, I couldn't even live without that.
3: We absolutely have that in archaeology in terms of, I mean, the stuff that you guys kind of hear about all the time, right? Our DNA analysis and carbon-14 kind of stuff. So they're a little bit well, more well-established, but there are, every day, there are new kinds of studies like strontium isotope analysis, different kinds of molecular ways that we're learning more about residues and people and moving animal migrations, you know? So I think anything that gives us a more systemic approach or a more systemic picture, green light, man.
1: I agree. In the world of bee research, 20 years ago, it was hard to hard to get funding for, and harder to publish studies on bee diversity, like what bees live where. People thought of it just like a species list, and it wasn't useful. Now, fast forward 20 years, and there's threats of bee declines. We really need that kind of data, those kind of data, you know, what bees live where. And so I think there's been a a big shift in, at least in the bee world, about what kind of data we need to collect. And it looks like that this could be a, a shift in this fire ecology world, looking at new data to predict future events.
2: And interestingly, in my field, 20 years ago, we were developing interventions for patients to help educate them about their new diagnoses, but we didn't think we needed to ask them what they wanted in those interventions that we knew more than they did. And back then, it was really innovative to include patients in your study team. And now um, you couldn't get a grant if you didn't have patient co-investigators on your grant. So it's totally a different way of looking at the world.
0: Let's turn now to a fun paleontology study that this sort of like builds on this idea of the different ways we measure and assess the world around us and the world that once was. This story comes from northern India, where researchers have discovered a fossil from a gibbon that appears to be at least 4 million years older than anything we've ever discovered from that species before. And one of the interesting things about this discovery is that while it is exciting that we found this fossil, the fossil. Itself didn't actually change our understanding of how old Gibbons are as a species because we already had genetic evidence that had told us that this particular lineage had been around as a species for like 20 million years. So, even older, in fact, than this fossil was that we discovered, even though the fossil was much older than any other fossil we discovered. Anyway, this kind of speaks to this idea that it used to be the genetics helped us understand fossil discoveries, and today fossil discoveries are helping confirmed genetic knowledge.
3: So I hope you guys don't mind if the the totally bananas monkey nut jumps in here.
0: I would expect nothing less.
3: <laughs> so, so this is really exciting because it's one of the ways in which the study of sort of paleo primatological remains gets to echo the study of paleo anthropologic remains meaning remains of really, really old monkeys gets to mirror remains of really, really old people. This is super cool because we, we now have the opportunity to look for all kinds of other divergences. I know this is just a molar and I'm getting way too pumped, way too fast. But at the same time, the opportunity to learn more about the distribution of these animals and the slight changes that we can see throughout time is... Staggering and really promising when it comes to also understanding interactions between early humans and early primates, other primates, I should say I guess.
1: I really liked the aspect of this that uh, the genetic data and now the fossil data are moving closer and closer together. There's a lot of complaints that people have in the study of evolution that there's not you know fossil evidence for different things. and I've used a lot of genetic evidence in my studies, and it's nice when, the continued discovery of fossils just kind of supports that. And so it's not changing the story, it's just further solidifying the story and helping us understand.
0: Researchers from the Center for Global Discovery and Conservation have recently published a report analyzing unprotected terrestrial areas that they say if we could protect these areas, these areas would have potential to sequester carbon and conserve biodiversity. About 15% of our planet's surface is currently protected, and this report suggests that protecting another 35% would be a good bet for protecting us from an even greater mass extinction event than the one we're already in the middle of. I, I love aspirational reports like this, but this does feel really, really aspirational, doesn't it?
1: It does, especially because just in the last few years here in the West, we've seen the opposite happening. We've seen previously protected lands being reduced with very little regard for some of the biodiversity there. And so it's both alarming, but also kind of frustrating because we're not even staying neutral anymore. We're going in the opposite direction.
2: So I found this article really fascinating and it opened my eyes to some things. Some things, obviously, we know, but a couple of the things that I thought was interesting and why I think this is so important, even if it's aspirational, is that The animals and birds and reptiles are disappearing, right, tens to hundreds of times faster than it ever has before because of logging and hunting and farming and development. The other thing that I thought was really interesting on this was that indigenous people make up less than 5% of our population, but they manage or have some sort of rights to over a quarter of the world's land surface. And so a lot of this overlap in terms of what needs to be protected also overlap with their land. And I think that opens up some interesting opportunities to protect maybe both the culture as well as protect the biodiversity.
0: I really appreciated that aspect of the report because, Angie, as you say, we can't extract indigenous peoples and cultures from these conversations. They very clearly need to be integrated into the solutions and, in fact, a part of coming up with the solutions. And that's something that this group worked very hard to do and needs to be reflected in even more ecological research moving forward.
1: Can I say one more thing about this
0: study? Of course you can
1: so i mean there's lots of good stuff here but one thing where i feel like it fell short and of course this is my soapbox so it's easy for me to jump on it but uh this was very focused on vertebrates uh and vertebrates while they're important and they're charismatic there's four times as many bee species in the u.s than bird species yet there's very little attention to those bee species which are you know the main pollinator for many of the plants that support these birds and mammals and and other organisms. We're in a more precarious situation if we include all the other kinds of animals that were largely not included here.
0: You mentioned the need to protect invertebrates. Not long back on this program, we had Skylar Hopkins talking about the need to protect parasites. And one of the most Fascinating studies I've come across in a while came from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences this month and indicated that a parasitic plant known as the daughter knows how to flower when its host sends out a signal that it's going to be flowering. So this thing doesn't know on its own how to flower. It only knows because it it collects signals from the water and the nutrients that it is gathering from the thing that it's latched onto. This is that very similar sort of basic knowledge that you guys were talking about that we need to rapidly collect in order to kind of have a better understanding of how our world works. Did this thing blow your mind like it blew my mind?
3: Absolutely. <laughs> this, thing, this plant is so cool and so alien at the same time.
1: You know, I've seen these plants near Death Valley. If you go up on the kind of the foothills surrounding Death Valley, you see some of these. a lot of them are yellow. They don't even they don't even have the green pigment in there for photosynthesis because they're such efficient parasites that they're just sucking all the nutrients out of their host. One of the things I thought was really cool about this is that the plant's life cycle, which you know is kind of foreign because it's a parasite, but it starts off as a seed. Like most plants, it grows a root like most plants and grows out these little tendrils. Unlike most plants, it doesn't have any leaves. And so these tendrils grow out as soon as they find another plant to latch onto, they latch onto this plant and kind of start sucking out its nutrients. As soon as they get onto that plant, their own root disappears, kind of, you know, disintegrates. And so then they are solely living off of their host.
0: I love the fact that these things are called wizard's net and strangleweed, which just sounds like something straight out of Harry Potter.
2: It totally does.
0: Let's talk about something that really doesn't have anything to do with the biological world. This is like very much a part of our ancient history. Let's talk about Stonehenge. You would think that we had researched this mysterious monument completely to death, but out comes this new study earlier this month. Suggesting that the stones were placed nearly to perfection in a way that amplified voices and improved the sound of music being played inside the structure. And here's the wacky thing. A lot of experts, even those who did the study, said that even though Stonehenge worked this way, it's likely that it wasn't even its intended purpose. This was just a really cool study.
3: It's crazy. It's one of those sort of niche fields, sort of acoustics of archaeology that is kind of exploding right now. Have you guys heard of the study of what Neanderthals' voices probably sounded like?
2: No, No, but I'm telling Tell us more.
3: They, they've gotten this sort of vocal actor to engage in looking... So first you look at the morphology of the voice box and it, they sound very <laughs> very loud and kind of high-pitched and nasally. It's the complete opposite of what I've been picturing with sort of low grunts and, and that kind of thing. But this interest in acoustics, everything from architectural to we have some kind of experimental reconstructions of earlier... Stringed instruments that have sound boxes in them, so it's it's sort of a repetitive idea of dealing with a sound box. So it's interesting that of all of the different ways that we've been grappling with Stonehenge so far, that now we've sort of dipped our toes in the acoustic side of the, the pond, if you will.
1: I mean, we have no idea what Stonehenge was for. We know that there were some burials there, but it seems like it's a more sophisticated structure the more we find out about it. And so it's kind of interesting for them to say, yeah, that has this really cool acoustic properties that might have been accidental, but pretty neat to think. So their experiment suggests if you're standing outside of the circle, you don't hear the sound as well. If you're inside the circle, it kind of reverberates like you're inside a living room. Actually better than in a living room is what they said. So for an accident, if that's what they're suggesting, it's a pretty good accident. But it seems like it's probably more complexities going on there than we realize.
0: Which all leads us to the fact that Stonehenge was indeed created by aliens.
1: <laughs> oh, I was going to say no. it, but I, I wanted to let you say it. <laughs> no! Well, you have, you have to hear the aliens better, so you have to make it acoustically viable, right?
0: In the time we have left today, I wanted to know what research-related study or news caught your eye this month. Joseph? Speaking of acoustics, so During
1: the pandemic, there has been lots of changes for all of us. And one of these changes is more of us are working at home, so there's less traffic. But some really cool, a really cool study that was done, I think it was out of San Francisco, they were recording bird sounds and they had the bird sounds from before pandemic times, and now they're re-recording them because the birds are actually singing differently because there's less background noise. There's less traffic noise. So the birds are singing more quietly because they don't have to compete the traffic noise. But because of that, they're able to put a little bit more flair in their sounds. Rather than just belting out a, a chirping song, they can do a little bit more fancy stuff because they don't have to compete with the human sound. So I thought that was really cool.
2: You've just made Angie, me so what you- happy, Joe. <laughs> That is like just delightful, isn't it cool? That is so cool. And can you
0: can you follow that up with something equally cool?
2: Of course I can. Well, and I actually feel like we're betraying you and with your intro when you were talking earlier about there's other news besides COVID. And then Joe starts with COVID and I'm continuing with COVID because that's all I think about these days because a lot of my research is in infectious disease and risk communication. But there was a great interview actually in JAMA last week with a member of the National Academy of Science and Engineering and Medicine group about how do you communicate about COVID to people and how do you address these, you know, to get people to follow the guidelines, masks, six feet away. And it kind of hit home. I was reading it this morning because we were just in the Tetons over the weekend and every place we went into in Jackson, the minute you walk in the door, there's hand sanitizer and there are masks. And it, it just was a habit that that's how you behave at their stores and they put signs up saying we don't have great medical facilities here, please be careful. In the report that this was just a, a new report that they came out that really to get people to change behavior, you have to make the behavior really easy. You have to make it rewarding to repeat. you have to tie it to a habit. And you have to kind of make it clear how their past behaviors and future needed behaviors align and don't align and address those issues. It's been amazing to me how much difficulty we've had in getting people to get on board with some of these habits. And so I'm hoping that this report, which I haven't had time to completely read because you know how long those can be, is to really help us think about how the messages that we are using impact positively and negatively both on these guidelines. And then once we have a vaccine, how are we gonna communicate about the vaccine in a way that will allow people to feel comfortable taking the vaccine
3: and keep us all safe.
0: And Nikki, bring us home.
3: Well, I'm glad you brought up some communications there, Angie, because my my big thing that's mind-blowing for me this week has to do with monkey communication. Um, There's been a study that kind of addresses the way that we think through linguistics as humans. So we're pretty good at stringing together related items and sort of nesting different phrases together. So if I said something like, this pandemic is awful, that's a pretty straightforward thought, right? But if I say something like, this pandemic, which has put so many people out of work, is awful, not to mention a health risk, you see the way we have different sort of nested ideas in there, different subjects, different verbs. This is called recursion. And they've recently discovered that monkeys are capable of doing this, which is super exciting because they were testing rhesus monkeys, and these rhesus monkeys, once they were trained up a little bit and what exactly we're, we're looking for as mental and linguistic patterns, they tested better at this kind of linguistic thinking than about three-fourths of preschoolers, which is totally mind-blowing to me. I think we're seeing some patterns here in terms of communication, in terms of linguistic ability, and yeah, it's just, it's it's exciting. And the rhesus monkey was recently found about, uh, I think it was 1750 BC, I think, don't quote me, about that early, outside of its normal habitation range, over in the same area where Lapis Lazuli comes from, which would speak to kind of what we talked about when I was on the show before about the exchange of monkeys and or their iconography out of India so that's all these things are tying together and it's so exciting
0: we're gonna have to leave it there Nikki Pareja it was so great to have you with us
3: it was awesome to be back you guys are a blast
0: and Angie Fagerlin thank you
2: thank you it was great to talk with y'all
0: and Joseph Wilson thank you for joining us today as always Thank you. That was fun. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.